Welcome to Season 7 of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Farina, a veterinarian and a writer, and I've worked in the animal healthcare industry. And prior to that, I was an MTV journalist and a radio personality. So yes, my career has taken me in lots of different directions. Speaking of directions, in each episode of Scrub Chat, I sit down and chat with a guest so they can share their different directions and journeys. We'll explore veterinary medicine and how it fits in with other aspects of our lives. One last thing, thank you Zoetis. Zoetis has generously created these podcasts to help support the veterinary profession. Today we get to sit down with Dr. Morgan MacArthur, a veterinarian who is a community development educator for the University of Wisconsin-Madison Extension, who has such awesome life skills that when I was doing my research about him, I had this enormous grin on my face and I'm thinking, he also does that? Wait until you hear about Morgan, my friends. This isn't going to be just some little carousel ride. No, this is going to be master storyteller meets mega roller coaster. Welcome to the show, Morgan. It's um, fantastic to be here, right? And I'm flattered for the ask and eager for the conversation. Well, me too. I can't wait. So let's get started. You earned your Doctor of Veterinary Medicine degree from Iowa State University, and you were a large animal practitioner in Idaho for 13 years. So what was interesting to you about large animal medicine? I had a yearning to return to Idaho after a family vacation in the early 70s. I graduated Iowa State in 1983, so full transparency here. I'm an OLD guy, old guy. (laughs) I had always yearned to return to this fantastic state of Idaho, and the veterinary degree was a passport. It allowed me to go pretty much anywhere I wanted to go, and I wanted to return to Salmon, Idaho, which was butted up against the wilderness area in Idaho. And with uh, DVM in hand and uh, the U-Haul trailer packed, off I went. It's a longer story than that, but that's that's the short of it. And so I got to go out and work in the cowboy culture of Idaho, and it was thrilling. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I was a practitioner in some form or fashion for uh, round numbers, about 15 years out there working on uh, horses and cattle, uh, mostly beef, cow-calf, and um, and equine, with a little sprinkling of small animal in there as well. It seems like it all came back to this family vacation, although did you grow up on a farm? I mean, most veterinarians and veterinary technicians and so forth are now just loving, you know, companion animal medicine, small animal medicine. So what was it that made you excited about the cows and the horses and things? So it's, it's interesting. Everybody's got a, a formative path, right? Everybody's got a life story. And when I was in junior high school, uh, a friend of my parents was a large animal veterinarian. Actually, he and his wife, Illinois grads, were husband and wife team. She did small animal. He did large. But he also owned a very unconventional swine operation uh, in my little bitty hometown of Baraboo, Wisconsin. And I worked on his farm for summers and on weekends. And so as it came time to make decisions with regard to college, really that was all I knew was, huh, um, it'll be ag and I could be a veterinarian like uh, Dr. Loesch was. And little did I know that it was not such a simple decision, right? Wisconsin didn't yet have a veterinary school 
And there were many, many obstacles, one of which was my academic aptitude. <laughs> um, but uh, that by itself is an interesting story, but we won't tell it today. Nonetheless, my influence was came from that guy. And there was some encouragement there to, to go, and then off I went. And... Um, faced the many, many challenges along the way, but got into and stayed in veterinary school. It's a little bit like riding the bull, right? A bull rider has to stay on for eight seconds. I had to stay in for four years, uh, but we got that done. And then I had the degree in hand and, and let the learning begin. Hold on. Wait, I can't just let it go where you talk about your academic journey and you just, you're like, yeah, we'll save that for another time. Well, okay. So the the, the short of it is that uh, I was always a middle of the pack sort of uh, student. Not that I didn't have the ability, probably didn't have the motivation. And so when I, you know, made my commitment to to go pre-vet at a at a smaller University of Wisconsin school in the University of Wisconsin Stevens Point, I had an academic advisor who looked at my high school transcript and looked me straight in the eye and said, huh, uh, do you know how hard it is to get into veterinary school? Um, basically, he said, I don't think you got the chops. And it didn't, it, it made me, it, it was hurtful, of course, uh, but it was also motivating and right time, right place, scored uh, well on an early chemistry exam and a glimmer was there that I could do this. And then I applied myself full throttle to the endeavor of getting into veterinary school at the expense of my uh, social development, right? But um, nonetheless, goal achieved, uh, worked really, really hard to get in. And I'm not the brightest bulb in the box, but uh, so I had to work pretty hard to, to, to get what I got and was all full of myself coming through pre-vet with, with good marks, good enough to get in after three years. Uh, and then your first few days in veterinary school when they issue the white coats and you look around and you've got 120 colleagues who have the swagger of fighter pilots because, the, you know, they're academically superior. <laughs> and <laughs> you go from the top of one curve to the bottom of another. It yes. was a very humbling experience. And, um, yeah, that, that, that by itself was educational, right? Mm -hmm. and in the moment, didn't have didn't have the um, experience or the self-awareness to process it properly. But years later, I could look back and say, you know what? It, it didn't matter that much. But it's, nonetheless, it was, it was a hard slog. It was a hard slog. For some people, they would go like, oh, I can't do it. You're right. You know, I, yeah, there's no way I can get into veterinary school. But instead, you used it as a motivator. That's really fantastic how you did that. Well, that's everybody's choice too, right? So everybody has that choice of what kind of a conversation are we going to have here about these things? And there are some absolutely remarkable people in the world, not just in our profession, but people in the world who have, have been told you're not going to amount to anything. And that can be rocket fuel or it can be a fire retardant. You know, it can just snuff. And, and there are lots of stories in the world if you ask people about their journeys, um, about 
how they process that. Even though in the moment we might not think that we have a choice, we have a choice about how we respond to those words and what kinds of words we feed into our own psyche, into our own spirit, into our own soul. Those words shape people and and they they can they can damage or lift people. So the words that we choose to use with others and with ourselves, ooh, very powerful. Mhm. Absolutely. In the mid-90s, you took a break to work in a corporate environment unrelated to veterinary medicine at Lockheed Martin in Idaho. What Mm -hmm. was happening during this time in your life that made you decide you wanted to pivot? So it was a complicated little sequence of events. Uh, I worked, as we all do at some point, probably. Uh, worked with a fellow that I didn't get along with so very well. We were co-partners in this mixed practice. And Twice a year, we would give seminars for our ranching customers. And so those seminars would be about, you know, disease conditions, management, uh, vaccination programs, whatever it might be. And this guy, before he got into veterinary school, had been a mathematics teacher in a boarding school in Colorado. So mathematics teacher, boarding school, that means he is teaching an abstract concept, uh, mathematics, to adolescents. He was exceptionally good at teaching and at holding an audience and being clever and all of these things. And I was a blubbering mess as a public speaker. And yet um, my, my regard for this fella was such that I couldn't have him be better than me. Testosterone is a very powerful hormone, right? And so um, I thought, I got to fix this problem. And I joined Toastmasters. It's an international organization that's dedicated to improving public speaking and leadership. And so there was a, a chapter, a club in Idaho Falls where I was practicing. And I joined the club. And that, Kim, was a game changer. Not immediately, but over years, that was a game changer that eventually opened my eyes to all sorts of opportunities and possibilities that I couldn't see um, as I was preg testing a bunch of cows. But once I engaged with Toastmasters and engaged with it with the same vigor and verve that I had with getting into veterinary school, really applied myself. And, you know, anytime we apply ourselves, fully, the results can surprise. And that, and those results did. Uh, I met some interesting people um, and could see opportunities. At some point, somebody said, how much would you charge to come and speak to our group? And I said, excuse me? They said, no, 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 we'll, we'll pay you. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, hang on. Here's an opportunity that I never saw coming. So I became disillusioned with my practice situation. In Idaho Falls, there was a sprawling nuclear research facility. At the time, it was called the Idaho National Engineering Laboratory. Today, it is just the Idaho National Laboratory, but it's part of a group of laboratories, national laboratories that are run for the Department of Energy. And back in the day, there were 10,000 employees on this, in, this, in this facility, and it, was, um, it had a footprint as large as the state of Rhode Island out in the high desert outside of Idaho Falls, where they would do research on nuclear reactors. And big science community. And I had a couple of things going for me. One, I had growing 
communication skills. And two, I had this deep science background. What veterinarians maybe don't think about is that they've got a tremendous foundation. They're able to speak a scientific language. They're able to think critically. And so there are opportunities out there that go beyond, you know, our traditional um, practice, industry, government, whatever it might be. So I sold myself to that laboratory as having science background and communication skills, and I hired on as a technical writer. And people kind of looked at me like, "What are you? Have you have you just thrown away that education?" Heck no! And this is the story of my entire career arc has been: I haven't thrown away my education at all. I've applied it in unconventional ways. So. Part of my mission these days, right, at age 64, is to shine the light back at the the veterinary profession and say, you've got many, many options for applying these skills that you've got that you can't maybe see. And so that was what happened to me. So I left... I left pulling calves at 20 below in January to to go to work in a bureaucracy for a government contractor. And you go, oh, wait a second. That doesn't sound like fun. But how educational was that, right? Very educational. Because in a corporate environment, uh, we get exposed to, you know, sort of corporate practices, best practices, um, strategic planning and and how to run a meeting and, and lots of things that otherwise, as veterinarians, we wouldn't experience. So it was a tremendous learning experience, and I stayed with that for five years, all the while moonlighting on the side, um, still pulling calves at 20 below, uh, but only for the people that I wanted to work for. But I got exposed to elements of, of a corporate culture that I otherwise never, ever would have brushed up against. Right. And, you know, one thing in my research that I found out about you is that you had once said, we went from a veterinarian who speaks to a speaker who is a veterinarian. And I thought that was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It was surprising. Some of that came from the invitations to come and speak. And so that was adding to my business, I suppose, the the business side of, of what I did. But as veterinarians, we are exposed to so many things, so many experiences, so many situations that are just so rich. I call it the privilege of the profession. And it took me, all of these things take me so long to, to kind of figure out. But, and I wish now, people say to me now, uh, do you want to go back to practice? Don't you miss practice? No, I don't miss practice. <laughs> but I wish I had been writing things down then because only the, only the top memories um, stay with me. I journal daily now. I wish I had had that discipline and that practice when I was in practice, because the material is just rich. Our lives are just rich as veterinarians. Every interaction that we have with humans, humans are the strangest animal of all, right? So those interactions can be so interesting. And if we're aware of what's going on and process it as a storyteller, there's a great story there. Um, Oh, it would so enrich us, and I think it would also help thwart or at, at least reduce the, the whole burnout factor. It would increase gratitude, increase pre- appreciation, 
enhance connections and enhance our lives. And at the same time, we then are able to amplify that and help other people too. I want to just point out now, first of all, that in 1994, you were awarded Toastmasters International World Champion of Public Speaking, beating out over 10,000 international contestants for the title. That is so impressive, Morgan. Thank you. That's huge. (laughs) I, I wanted to make sure our listeners knew that because, I mean, wow, major. But... Let's talk about the storytelling and that you say that, you know, there's a great story here. uh, Talk to us more about that, how you incorporate that either into your speaking or just in life in general. So now I I see things through a lens, right? I, I see every interaction, every conversation as a possible story. And not necessarily that it has to be speech worthy, but so much of our days, so much of our time goes whistling past, and we may not see it for the richness in the subtlety that it offers us, but every interaction, every observation is an opportunity to say, huh, what just happened there? These days, I teach a little leadership program. Uh, I love it. I love, 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 love the work. And I love to see the light bulb come on in people's eyes. And um, I'm a hand lettering enthusiast. And for each of our sessions in the leadership program, I capture quotes or ideas and letter them onto flip chart paper in advance. And then we hang the posters around the walls. And one of my favorite ones that works its way into every seminar, whether it's a leadership seminar for the group or I'll be speaking with a group of dairy farmers in a couple of weeks in central Wisconsin, and they'll get it too. And I talk about, as a veterinarian, as veterinarians, plural, because that's who our audience is, and you are too. Um, Here we are. We have this extensive and expensive training uh, to understand four-legged animals. And yet the one that is the linchpin in all of our interactions is the strangest animal of all, and that's the one on two legs. Try to figure that one out, right? And so over the years, I have made observations that can be distilled down to one poster, Kim. One poster. Okay, what is it? It says humans are emotional, so we are owned by our emotions. Humans are irrational. How many times have you ever said to your 13-year-old son, what were you thinking? (laughs) He wasn't. Um, you know, so humans are emotional. They are irrational. They are convenience craving. Show of hands, who here has ever shopped online by Amazon instead of going downtown to the bricks and mortar store? Right. All of us. Convenience yes. craving, reward seeking. You know, we're owned by that little limbic system in the middle part of our brain that has these little drips of dopamine. Every time we get a drip of dopamine, I'll have another hostess Twinkie. Thanks very much. It makes me feel so good. Right? So we're reward seeking. We are history shaped. Right? So the things that we have experienced, the things that people have said to us, you know, we are who we are because of where we've been. So we're history shaped. We are blemished by our biases. All of us are biased in some way. 
and, um, and, and that affects how we interact with the world. And last of all, we are meaning-making machines, right? The wrinkly part of our brain experiences uh, our world, but it means nothing until we create a story. So here we are as veterinarians, and we are, we are data-driven, evidence-based. We're, we're logical, rational, la di da di da But at our core, we're still humans, and we are still storytelling machines. We are meaning-making machines. We have to turn it into a story. And you're going to say, what? I'm not telling stories. Yes, you are. We all tell each other stories. Um, we tell ourselves stories, whether we're rationalizing a situation or interpreting a situation, it's all about story. So when we are challenged by people and how they just don't understand, whatever, if we see it through that lens, through all of those, and we see how incredibly complex and how difficult it is to communicate through all of that, Hmm. Interesting. I think stories are the currency of human communication. You know, in getting ready for this conversation, I realized it's been a long, long time since I have been talking about the power of story. And I found an old Time magazine that I saved in a file. And I'm going to indulge you with a quote from this old Time magazine. Please do. Oh, right. It is from... It is from November 6th, 2000, Time Magazine. Um, and it's an essay at the, end of the, at the end of the magazine written by Roger Rosenblatt. And uh, the quote of the title, the, the headline is, I am writing blindly. And actually, the, the thrust of the article is that many, many years ago, there was a Russian submarine that blew up and went to the bottom. And not all of the crew members died immediately. And one fella who um, was on the boat was jotting in the dark. Um, he was, and he said, I am writing blindly. And Rosenblatt, the author of this essay, says that we as humans are compelled to write stories. And he's got a great quote in here that I have highlighted. And he said, so enduring is this storytelling need that it shapes nearly every human endeavor. Businesses depend on the stories told of past failures and successes and on the myth of the mission of the company. In medicine, doctors increasingly rely on a patient's narrative of the progress of an ailment, which is inevitably more nuanced and useful than the data of machines. In law, the same thing. Every court case is a competition of tales told by the prosecutor and defense attorney. The jury picks the one it likes best. We are meaning-making machines. We are marinating in material that we call stories each and every day. Yes. It's the power of storytelling. So is there a story about New Zealand? Because you moved there in 1996 to take a job in research and development, and you worked in parasite management. Mm -hmm. So why in the world did you cross a couple of oceans for your next career move? Oh, golly. It was hormonal. <laughs> it wasn't the sheep? Because uh, I know the sheep outnumber the, the humans there. Uh, so was do. that a drive? They do. Um, never seen so many sheep in my life. Uh, no, actually, Toastmasters has more to answer for. I met a woman with uh, an unusual accent at a Toastmasters conference in San Diego. 
I was entranced by the accent. It was sort of a hybrid of Irish and New Zealand, and dang it, um, off she went after the conference. And back in the day, uh, those phone bills were really, really, really big. And I said, you know what? Uh, this is unsustainable. Yeah. So I either got to quit or I got to get. And um, a, a lot more elements to the story, but I made a decision to pack it all up and go to New Zealand without a job. Change is, is blinking scary. So I tore away from friends, family, familiarity to go to a different part of the world where the money looked different and they drove on a different side of the road. And now I was the one who had an accent. Eight weeks after I arrived in New Zealand, in the middle of their winter, in the middle of our summer, July, the phone rang and it was the fellow from the shipping company who said, Mr. MacArthur, he said, your, your gear has arrived. He said, uh, we'd like to drop it off. And I was in a particularly low spot. I, was, I didn't have a job and was suffering from what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? And I asked him quietly, I leaned close to the phone and I said, how much would it cost to ship it back? He said, mate, he said, if that's the way you're thinking, you've got a problem. <laughs> you know, teachers appear in our lives in, in strange places using strange voices, but that guy made me realize, hang on, I got to get after it here. You know what? Um, I'm having a bit of a pity party. I need to get after it here and really engage. And so from that point forward, it was, right, you're here. Let's go. And I was lucky enough to align myself with, with a job recruiter who found this unconventional sort of job, and she had a sense of my personality. She said, I've got this opportunity for a company called Ancare. It's a homegrown New Zealand company that makes dewormers for cattle and sheep. She said, I'm not sure they're ready for someone like you. And I thought, huh, what does that mean? But uh, I showed up and they needed a veterinarian who also had writing skills. And it was a, it was a great match and it was a great 10 years. And I, as you just pointed out, I didn't have, I had a veneer's depth of knowledge of parasitology. And that was really the core of this company's business was parasitology. And I, full transparency, I said to the owner of the company, I said, you know what? Um, my knowledge of parasitology is pretty thin. He said, doesn't matter. We'll teach you. So his was a classic uh, attitude. I read about it in a book about Southwest Airlines once. It was hire for attitude, train for skill. Yes. As the uh, shipping guy said, you're here. Let's go and let's make it work. And it's like if something is could be done better. If you could be used in a different way and, 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 and blossom in it, go for it. It doesn't matter. I love that saying because I, I, I often remind folks that, you know, hire for attitude, you can, you can teach skills, but you just, you can't teach attitude. So you're right. I actually happened to also learn about you that you're a licensed auctioneer in Wisconsin. And I was curious how you decided to pursue that skill because did you just say, huh? 
you know, auctioneering skills would be very helpful in life. (laughs) (laughs) They'd be helpful as a speaker. How many of us have had to endure a speaker? You know, you look at the program and you say, they're going to talk for an hour. This is going to take forever. This is going to seem like a lifetime. Well, hey, if you've got auctioneering skills, can't you just accelerate that one hour program and and just jam it into five minutes if you can talk? No, no, you can't. (laughs) Because I know what, because I want you to actually, if you can, uh, give us a sample of what it sounds like, because I couldn't handle a lecture like that for an hour. So I'd always been fascinated by the auctioneer's chant. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to go to auction school? And I had visions of going through the front door and in a fortnight's time and two weeks time coming out the back door with this whole new shiny set of fast talking, wow, is that cool skills? No, it doesn't work that way. But I did get the the basic training in auctioneering and that was an eye opener for me. So, um, and it's also a great way to learn how to use the instrument. We don't think about our speaking voice as an instrument, but singers, performers, actors are all trained uh, to use their voice in, in a way that doesn't hurt the voice. They learn to project, they learn to inflect, they learn to, to use the instrument in ways that enhance their performances. And certainly there was a lot of that at auction school. We're standing around in a circle with these cowboy types and we're reciting nursery rhymes, Kim. Nursery rhymes. Two weeks of my life, Betty Botter bought some butter. But she said this butter's bitter. If I put it in my batter, it'll make my batter bitter. So she bought a bit of better butter, put it in her bitter batter, made her bitter better better. So it is better Betty Botter bought a bit of better butter. Right? But those tongue twisters are part of uh, learning to train the instrument, not only to recite it quickly, but there's a rhythm to it. And it's, um, right, it's sort of foundational stuff for auctioneering. Um, I'll, I'll say that it, uh, auction school introduced me to a very fast woman named Betty Butter, about some butter, but she said, This butter bitter. If I put it in my batter, it'll make my batter bitter. So she bought a bit of better butter, put it in her bitter batter, made it a bitter better butter. So it is better, Betty Butter, bought a bit of better butter. Would you get one now? Two, two, two. Would you get two now? Three. Would you get three dollar now? Three and a half, half, half. Would you get three fifty now? Four dollar bit now? Four and a half, four seventy five, four seventy five. Could you go four seventy five? How about five, 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 beginning five, 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 now twenty five. Five, five and a quarter, five and a quarter, would you go 25, 525, 525, going once, going twice. Dr. Farina, you just bought it for $5. Bravo. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) You're a photographer. You're, you know, an Ironman triathlete. Why is it essential to have a life outside of veterinary medicine? It's oxygen. Let's just jump from one endeavor to another. I got involved with triathlon at about age 40, decided that I was at the crossroads of fatness or fitness. And so I opted to take the turn towards fitness. And I uh, wanted to do a triathlon, a swim, bike, run event. But I had to learn to swim as an adult. Now, swimming is a very technical endeavor. Hard to learn, especially as an adult. And But one thing about swimming is you, we don't have the luxury of getting oxygen anytime we want it, right? Oxygen is really, really important for our comfort and for our lives. 
And so with your face down in the water swimming, you only get sips of oxygen. And that's just a recovery moment, right? So as we immerse ourselves in this very demanding profession, we need little sips of oxygen. We need recovery. And we don't, you know, a lot of people think, oh, I'm hanging out for that one week vacation, this break in the action, when in fact, alternative endeavors that fill us up or at least give us little sips of oxygen. And for me, it's it's lettering, it's writing. We need these creative bits and pieces to fill us up and and because we're immersed in the profession otherwise. And so it's it's really a recovery strategy. You know, in my leadership program, I'll ask the question, what's your passion? And a lot of people can't answer the question. They don't know what their passion is. Well, what do you like to do outside of work? Well, uh, I don't know. Huh. Well, there's your project, right, is to find out what it is that that lights you up, what it is that isn't work-related, what it is that... Um, that can refresh you somehow. That's great. I mean, I I think, you know, what this conversation has showed, I mean, you have had such a colorful life and, you know, looking back and and we often say hindsight is 2020. I think we've gotten a lot of great advice from you, Morgan. Is there anything else that you would tell our listeners that, you know, based on your own life lessons, what what advice you would give them? I've got an 89-year-old mom, and it's interesting. As veterinarians, we're trained observers, and we may not perceive ourselves to be that, but again, all of that extensive and expensive training in veterinary school to learn to diagnose with creatures that are unable to communicate has imbued us with skills that if we can lift our gaze from the exam table, if we can lift our gaze from the the four-legged animal at hand, unless you're an avian practitioner, right? You've got a two-legger there, <laughs> but it's, it's the humanoids. If we can lift our gaze from the four-legger and train our attention on the two-legger with these observational skills, retain some curiosity and ask really, really good questions. It's amazing uh, what can come our way in terms of a learning. And a learning that I have made as I'm entering the wild and weird world of elder care, right? We're seeing role reversal now watching my 89-year-old mom and my 90-year-old Greek mother-in-law and comparing and contrasting the two. And uh, the Greek mother-in-law is just a, a woman of tremendous color and vitality. My own old mom is struggling a bit. And I think the difference, this is the trained observer in me, I think the difference boils down to three things. One is passion. You know, what lights us um, And if it's not this, tick-tock goes the clock. Um, boy, it's, it's a long, hard slog if you're just, if you're just doing it because it's a J-O-B, right? If it's just a job, it's a job. And so a suggestion might be look for your passion. Explore uh, what life has to offer and what lights you up. What makes you happy? And that's a deep, deep, deep conversation with yourself. 
because happiness is probably not going to come externally. It's going to come from within, right? So passion, uh, purpose walks hand in hand with passion. Rolling out of bed each day, you know, what's my purpose today? I've been excited about, true story, I've been excited about this conversation for weeks, right? To, to even have an opportunity to talk about what I'm passionate about, which is storytelling and helping others see the power in story, their own and in others, and of the possibility of stories, right? So there's, there's purpose. Um, and the last one is people. We're a social species. I'm an introvert by nature, uh, true story. Every time I take that Myers-Briggs type inventory, I turn up a big eye. That just doesn't mean I'm shy and reserved, but it means that I recharge uh, more by myself than I do in the presence of a lot of other people. But we still all need people. And with these storytelling skills, when we realize standing at the threshold of a room full of people we don't know, is that a room full of strangers or is it a room full of stories that we haven't yet heard? You know, that's a powerful reframe. First of all, if we're curious and we ask great questions and shift the emphasis to the other, a lot of things happen. First of all, we learn from other people. If we ask good follow-up questions, hey, trained observers, ask good follow-up questions, tell me more. You're going to get some magic, magic, magic stuff. And that other person is going to think we are just a brilliant conversationalist. Um, Dale Carnegie said that in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, that he wrote in 1936. But it is so true, right? Uh, if we ask really, really good questions, we are engaging, we are encouraging, we are validating other people, and we're learning at the same time. It is so easy and so fun. So the three things are passion, they are purpose, and they are people. There's yes. a lot of oxygen in all three of those Ps. Yes, I completely agree. Gosh, will you stop by again? Because this has been incredible. Like I, I, I I'm ready to take my little sips of oxygen. I, I can't actually. I can't wait to go out and see the rest of the day. Because what stories are out there that are waiting to be told? Boom shaka laka laka boom, kiddo. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> this wraps up another episode of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at scrubchat at zoetis.com. And please don't forget to share and review this podcast. I mean, how could you not share this podcast so that we can produce more in the future? This episode was incredible. We are grateful to Zoetis for the support. I'm Dr. Kim Farina. I'll meet you back here next time. This is Scrub Chat.